Welcome everyone. I'm really grateful to get to be back in this place with you uh, for the first time in I don't know how many months. Um, and to be with some of you, I think, for the first time. Would you, would you raise your hand if this is actually your first time coming to the well? Very good. Praise the Lord. Testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Theatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man clothed with a long robe and with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with gold force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is, and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. Amen. If you were a person who did not read Greek, um, which I'm not, although I did spend a lot of time taking classes on it when I was in divinity school, um, and you were to read the Greek manuscript of this book, the very first word in the manuscript in Greek is the word from which we derive the English word, apocalypse. The opening word of this book is apocalypsis. I may be mispronouncing that. Apocalypsis. Apocalypse is the opening word of this book we begin together tonight. This word does not mean just the end of the world, even though the end of the world is part of what is envisioned in the book that follows the word apocalypse here. What an apocalypse is, it is simply put a vision. It is a vision or a revelation. It is vision that is given, a revelation, a seeing, and it's a kind of seeing that comes from outside our own powers to see. This, we read in verse 1, is the revelation, the apocalypse, of Jesus Christ. Everything that follows for the next 22 chapters of this book is the apocalypse of Jesus. It is of Jesus in the sense that it is His belongs to him. And it is of Jesus also in the sense that Jesus is the object of the vision. That Jesus finally is who is being revealed and disclosed in these 22 chapters that we're going to read together. The apocalypse is the apocalypse of Jesus in the sense that it is about him. Above all, what we hope to see tonight is who Jesus is is. Um, and who will see him to be in this first chapter tonight is who he always will be, even when we see him appearing um, in seemingly different guises at other places in the book. 
What is said of him here forms the ground and the taproot of everything that will be said about him throughout the book. But perhaps most importantly, it is this, this is the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus, in the sense that Jesus is the one who gives us the vision. We don't have this vision unless Jesus shares his vision with us. It is his apocalypse. It is the apocalypse of Jesus in the sense that he is the one who bestows it upon us. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is the revealer. He gives us the vision that we receive here from within the very light of the Godhead. From within the very light of the Godhead. So far, we're just halfway through verse 1. The revelation of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Um, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the next part of verse 1 is, which God gave him, which God gave him, to show his servants. Jesus, verse 1 tells us, received this apocalypse first from the Father so that he might share it with his servants. Already from verse 1 of this book, Revelation, we find ourselves welcomed and gathered into the very heart of God's relationship with God's self. Not just drawn into relationship with God, but, but what that relationship means is that we, we find the Father and the Son making room for us in the life of gift-giving between themselves that is what the Trinity is. So we find ourselves welcomed into the very heart of Godhead, into God's intercommuning life. The gift of this vision means, that should immediately signal to us, that whatever else is at stake for us in the book of Revelation, first and foremost, what's at stake for us is communion with the living God, is intimacy with the living God. And it signals to us, at a more subtle level, that this is a book that wants to be read intimately. It wants, it wants to be welcomed intimately. If in this vision the Lord is welcoming us into the intimacy of his own self, then there's an implication there that we're going to let this word come very close to us as we read it. The gift of this vision draws us into the economy of gifts between Father, Son, and Spirit. It comes to us from yet a further gift, the sowing of the vision um, to an angel who brings the vision to Jesus' servant, John. We come now to verse, verses 2 and 3. Um, with these verses, uh, I want to I use them, not, I don't want to just parse them out, but, but also to, to take them as an occasion to find clues for how we should read the book of Revelation and what kind of a thing an apocalypse is. So we read in verses 2 and 3, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and keep what's written in it, for the time is near. So again, let's read these words with an eye toward how we ought to read the rest of the book. Um, we can ask, broadly speaking, um, with reference to these verses, why should we read the book of Revelation to begin with? This is a question that a lot of people close to me have been asking me in recent weeks, especially 
um, ministerial colleagues uh, who have been like, what are you doing? What are you going to teach this year at the Wesley? And I'm like, Revelation. And people are like, why? Why would you do that? Why, why are you putting yourself through that? There's a suggestion um, in, in conversation uh, that I have with other ministers, and I think also just kind of a, a, a general sense that we have as Christians that there's something especially strange or difficult about the book of Revelation. Um, that maybe if we're going to read the book of Revelation, that we need to have a doctorate in biblical studies and know lots of obscure dead languages, um, or, or even to have some kind of like a secret archival knowledge of all of the, the you know, arcane history of the world so that we can create this kind of Da Vinci Code-esque key to under, unlock all the, symbol, the symbols in the book of Revelation. And so, if you're like me, for the most part, um, but it took me a long time to even consider reading this together as a community, and it's typically not a part of my, uh, my diet as a Christian. It comes up rarely in worship, and it's something that I sort of shy away from because of the sense of strangeness and difficulty. But in the history of Christianity, I was surprised to find out as I've been studying for this, that there's no book in the Bible that's received greater attention over the 2,000 years that there's been such a, such a thing as Christianity. There's no book in the Bible that has had so much ink spilled in commentaries as the book of Revelation. Far and away, more commentary has been written over the centuries about this book by Christians than any other book in the entire Bible. And so our discomfort, if, if it's not just me and it's others, our discomfort and our sense of the, the radically alien nature of this book or even its sort of specialness, um, is something that makes us a kind of minority in the longer trajectory of history. In other words, Christians throughout history have recognized this um, not only as potentially interesting for very smart people, but as bread and butter, as the bread and butter fare of, of being fed by the word of God together. And so instead of having this expectation um, that, that we should have you know, a, a special decoder read for this book, or some kind of an expectation that, that we need to come to this and have some fresh, new, hot take that no one's ever thought of on this book. Um, I would point us to verse 2, where John, having received this apocalypse from Jesus via angels, says simply this. John is a servant who testified to the word of God and the testimony of of Jesus Christ. Sorry, I only half the verse there on my page. I want to make sure I know what I'm talking about here. Um, Revelation is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Um, I doubt that any Christian in this room would deny that, but I think that's actually the place we need to begin in familiarizing ourselves with this book. This is a part of the canon of Scripture that the Lord has seen fit to give us. All 22 chapters of Revelation are the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. As such, we don't need a hot take on the book of Revelation. Rather, we should bring to Revelation whatever expectations and hopes we typically bring to the Bible. The expectation should be that through these words that we are addressed by God. That in the reading of this apocalypse, that Jesus is made present to us. Nonetheless, our sense of the, the oddness of Revelation is not entirely unfounded. And so in saying that we don't need to, to treat this book as radically alien, I don't want to deny that there's, some, there's is something specific and unique 
about every book of scripture. And I, I want to try to say something, begin to say something about what is specific and unique about this book of scripture. And begin to specify our expectations for reading it. So consider now the latter half of verse 2. John testified in the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Even to all that he saw. And focusing on that word saw right there, not to mention all the other instances of eyeball kinds of words, just in this first chapter of the book. Metaphorically speaking, Revelation is an ocular book. It's an ocular book, metaphorically speaking. The book is, as we said just a second ago, a vision. Its language is, is mostly visually descriptive. What we find in these chapters, in this word of God and testimony of Jesus, is something that we comprehend chiefly through, even if abstractly through, our sense of sight. We encounter something seen. What we find here is imagery. And the imagery that we find here is not merely descriptive, as if um, there's just this kind of forensic, uh, report from like a field biologist that's like, well, this is what this particular subspecies of this bird looks like. We're not merely receiving a, a, a sort of descriptive kind of imagery here, but rather as we get a clue in verse 3, this imagery is prophetic. It is prophetic. Um, apocalyptic, as a genre of literature, I would, I would actually say is a, is a subgenre of prophecy. And by prophecy, I don't necessarily mean fortune-telling, although all prophecy does have to do with the future. Um, I mean prophecy in the sense of uh, Ezekiel and books like that in Scripture. Um, prophecy, among all the other things that we could say about it, prophecy is something that is meant to be kept. Right? Something that's meant to be kept. It's not just seen, but kept. Um, where I'm getting that from right now, um, it's just from that word, keep, in verse 3. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. So the words of this prophecy are not just to evoke visual images, but images that in some way are supposed to be kept. Um, the grammar of this keeping is, is familiar to us. It's the kind of language that we use to talk about our disposition toward the commandments of Scripture. Um, we understand, I think, for the most part, that we're supposed to keep God's commandments. And John is saying something similar about what we're supposed to do with the vision, with the ocular dimensions of, of this book, the Apocalypse of Jesus. What John sees in this Apocalypse is shared with us um, in a way that it is, we're supposed to receive it in such a way that we let how we see and what we see, that we let our faculty of seeing, literally and figuratively, that we let our seeing be shaped by the vision that's being shared in this populace. The ocular or visual dynamics of Jesus' apocalypse closely bound up with the time dynamics, the temporal dynamics of the book of Revelation. So again, in the latter half of verse 3, we read, 
Blessed are those who hear and repeat what is written, for the time is near. The time is near. And so this keeping the vision is bound up with a sense of what time it is. This comment about the nearness of the time echoes what we heard at the end of verse 1, where we read that God gave this vision in order to show his servants what must soon take place. So there's this sense of something that's coming down the pipe and it's coming pretty quickly and it's about to arrive. On their face, both of these time comments, these temporal markers in these verses, might suggest that Revelation is chiefly about the future. You understand what I'm saying here? Like, something is about to happen. It seems like we're talking about the future here. And to be clear, the time that's being talked about is partly, as we're going to hear in a little bit, about the end of time, about the, the vanishing point on the horizon, or the, the, the point on the horizon where we fall off, and it's the end of the world. But a claim in verse 3, a claim like, for the time is near, in the larger context of the book of Revelation, should not be read only as a description or an orientation toward the future or the end of the world. But rather, even in the places where Revelation is talking about the future, and specifically the end of the world, the way this apocalypse is written invites us to recognize the way that the end is already beginning now. That we live now already at the end. And the imagery of, the Re of Revelation is to help us recognize the truthfulness of that claim. That the future is not just coming somewhere off in the distance. There's not this big gap between now and then. But that right now already the end is beginning. We're there already. As a proof text for that claim, if you need one, I refer you to verse 19 in this reading, where Jesus commands John, now write what you have seen, right? So earlier on in the chapter, what's, what he has seen seems to refer to something in the future. But then in verse 19, Jesus says, write what you have seen, what is, and what is to take place after this. For the most part, we will see that in the unfolding of the vision in this apocalypse, it's rarely possible to distinguish what is away from what is coming. And that is by design. The sense of time, and even uh, this, the, to the extent that there's a sense of narrative in, in the book of Revelation, uh, it's not linear or just a sequence of events, one after the other. Instead, um, I mean, like a gospel, a typical gospel unfolds like that. And so there are elements of narrative in Revelation. It would be wrong to say that it doesn't tell a story in some way. But it doesn't unfold in, in those sequential intervals in the way that we're used to hearing stories told. Instead, time unfolds through these overlapping repetition of repetitions of what at times appear to be the same events described from different angles. It is, um, there is an arc to the book of Revelation, to be sure, and yet it is radically nonlinear. It's, meant, it's not meant to be read um, as, as something you can map you know, in language arts class when you're junior high on, on the narrative uh, graph. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if that thing's called, but you know what I mean. Moreover, it's meant to illuminate and interpret what's already happening as much as it is to reveal what is going to happen. 
This is the sense of time, and the way time and we are bound up together in the apocalypse of Jesus, the book of Revelation. Moving on to verse 3. Uh, oh, excuse me, before moving on to verse 3. Um, more simply, and perhaps most crucially, the reading, hearing, and keeping of Jesus' apocalypse, we find in this verse, verse 3, comes to us an emphatic promise of blessing. We are promised, in the reading of this book, blessing. What's striking about this promise blessedness is how straightforward and simple the promise is. Right? So, blessed is everyone who reads aloud the words. You're going to be blessed if you read this stuff aloud. The words of prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and who keep it. Um, so, what we're not doing here is, be sure you don't screw up your interpretation of the book of Revelation. Um, or you're going to have to go to school for eight years to learn how to read this. Or if, if you correctly decipher the code, you will learn some cool things to wow your friends um, with your cool Bible knowledge. You might not have any friends if that's your approach to impressing people. <laughs> Rather, what we hear is simply, blessed is the one who reads this prophecy, who hear it. People that hear the words of this book, they're going to be blessed. And blessed are those who keep what's written in it. By the end of tonight, we will have begun to be able to say a bit about what that blessing consists of. For now, though, and really throughout our whole journey of reading this book, I would just hold out to you the simplicity of this blessing and, and ask you to recognize that we read Revelation as an act of faith in the promise that the Lord is going to bless us. As we read it. Moving on to verse 4. John and the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Um, I'm going to move a little more quickly through these verses. Um, Revelation is a book written to the church. The people who can anticipate in the hearing and reading of this word of the apocalypse, um, they are the people who are rightly called. The church. And the church that we meet in the book of Revelation, um, it is both specific churches, as we're going to read about next week, but it's also the church throughout time. But more importantly, the church that we read about in Revelation is the church gathered in the presence of God. The church that finds itself brought in a fashion similar to Isaiah chapter 6 into the presence in the temple in the glory, the terrifying time glory of the living God. Um, so, just a few things. We begin to see that here in verse 4. All right? um, this, and we see it, for example, in the seven spirits who are before the Lord's throne. Um, obviously, we see that it's the church that's being addressed because John's like, do the seven churches that are in Asia. Um, a few other things passingly here that I'm not going to delve deeply into. Um, him who was, excuse me, is and who was and who is to come. This is a, a phrase, if I'm not mistaken, that happens twice in this passage, several other times throughout the book of Revelation. Um, there's lots of different theological ang angles by which we can sort of plumb the depths of that refrain, who is and who was and who is to come. But many, many Christians, I want to signal this to you now, many, many Christians back in the day when people really knew how to read the Bible. Um, they were like, oh, obviously that means the Trinity. Uh, who is and who was and who has come. This is, um, these are symbolic designations of the three persons of 
opportunity. So there's that distractingly. Um, uh, yeah, the blessedness that we're promised is the presence of the living God. Um, and I guess I just want to say, if there are any of you here that are really anal or tender readers of the Bible, some people get really tripped up with the seven spirits thing here. And they're like, does God have seven spirits? Or does the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit divided? Or something like that. And uh, there's lots of different stuff you can read about that. I haven't read about that much about it because it seems pretty clear to me. I know I'm not like the only one that knows, but um, it seems to me that these spirits are kind of avatars, which maybe um, the sort of avatars for the churches, for the seven churches that are gathered before the throne of God. Um, whether those be this, this is kind of a synonym, the word spirit here is kind of a synonym for the angels that we hear talked about in verse 20, where we get the phrase the angels of the seven churches. I'm not sure. But it's clear that the, the lampstands and the stars and all these things later on in the passage, um, all of which are numbered seven, um, that they all represent the way that God gathers the church in, in this apocalypse into the throne room of the living God. Moving on to verse 5. Um, in verse 5, there is a multifaceted description of Jesus, um, some facets of which are relatively familiar, other facets of which are less familiar and will not explore tonight. Um, I do want to cover a couple of things, though. Um, one of the maybe five-ish descriptions of Jesus we find in this verse is that he is the firstborn from the dead. Um, he is the firstborn from the dead. This title for Jesus presumes that Jesus' resurrection portends our resurrection as well. That in the resurrection of Christ's flesh, that we have the sign, the reality and the sign, and promise of our own flesh being raised like and with his. Um, Jesus, at this point in Revelation, is already, is he already, as early as verse 1, has begun to be described as a priestly figure. He's the one in the presence of God who mediates the gifts of God to the rest of humanity. That's priesthood in a nutshell, all right? Um, and his death and resurrection and ascension, his presence as resurrected flesh with the Lord, makes him the firstborn from the dead. It, it makes him the sharer of his resurrected life to us. Does that make sense? A part of what he distributes to us in his priesthood. Is the resurrection from the dead. He is also described in this passage as him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Um, the thing that is initially striking to me about that description of Jesus is just how familiar it is to any other thing that we might say about Jesus as Christians who know him. Um, how similar it is to descriptions of Jesus everywhere else we find in the New Testament. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, if you don't hear anything else tonight, you hear this. He is the one who loves us and who set us free from our sins by his blood. And yet, familiar as that is, and necessary as the assurance of that description is at this point in the book, I also want to invite you to feel the tension. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, you should also feel some sense of tension with, with that description of Jesus as the one who loves you. Tension between the claim that we're loved by Jesus and everything else that's about to happen 
in the book of Revelation. If you do feel that tension, um, the tension isn't coming from the book of Revelation itself. Where it comes from is our notions of what it means to experience the love of God. Which, broadly speaking, for the most part, most of us assume that what it's going to feel like to be loved by Jesus is to be protected and taken care of and not subject to harm. Um, whether or not you would say that or not, there are a few people I know who don't have that kind of deep assumption about what it means for, for Jesus' love to be real in their life. But there's nothing safe about what happens to the Christians who are loved by Jesus in the book of Revelation. The fact that we are loved by Jesus in Revelation um, is not brought into question, at least within the book itself, by the suffering that it is to follow. And there's, there's something important and hopeful in that contrast of the way that in the book of Revelation it's obvious that Jesus' love can exist right alongside serious persecution and suffering. In a future that looks really bleak in all of its concrete manifestations. There's something to be explored there between the lack of tension in that relation between love and that. In our sense, our assumption of what it means to be loved by Jesus. Moving on to verse uh, 6. Um, so in verse 5, we started shifting from descriptions about Jesus, the priest, the messenger, the witness, and we begin to shift into an address to Jesus. So about halfway through verse 5, we hear to Jesus, um, the firstborn of the dead, etc. And this is a moment where John shifts gears into praise, into praising the Lord, and not just describing him. This shift is reinforced in a description of what Jesus has made us, his church, into. In verse 5, Excuse me, verse 6, we read, He has made us into a kingdom of priests, serving His God and Father. Jesus has made His church, to whom the apocalypse is given, into a priestly kingdom. And just as we've started to see this cascade of gift-giving that begins in the very life of the Trinity, and then is gifted out to the church that through that gift is gathered into the presence of God. So also, even the vocation of priesthood, of Jesus being the one that mediates God's presence to human beings, here in verse 6, we see that even that is shared by Jesus with his church. The church that Jesus gives the apocalypse to is a church called to the vocation of priesthood of being a place and a people in the world where the presence of God can be encountered and known. Okay, moving on. So that verse ends, verse 6 ends, with an enactment of priesthood, which broadly speaking is something that we call doxology. The verse ends, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is an act of praise. And by that point in the verse, I think we're reading right. We should recognize that it's not just John saying that, but that we're invited to step into, not just saying those words, but living the vocation that's implied in the vocation of priestly praise. Moving on to verse 7. In verse 7, we read, Look! Look! An imperative. Um, he 
coming of the clouds, everyone will see him, even those who pierce him on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. Look, again, apocalypse imparts a way of seeing. We're, under, we're not just understanding or comprehending these words, we are to see something when we read these words. And what we're supposed to see when we look in verse 7 is Jesus coming already. The tense here is, is. Look, he is coming. And then in the rest of that verse, there's a, there's a kind of subcontrast um, implied between those who, who begin looking now versus those who will not see him until his arrival is fully consummated at the very, very end. And this contrast highlights again the nature and the identity of the church. Those who look now, who heed the invitation, verse 7, they see Jesus now. And those who see him, by contrast, only on that day when every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail, um, there's a contrast between those two things. That's a contrast between those who are a part of the church um, and everyone else who is not. This is very similar to what's going on in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, um, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's, a, that's an apocalyptic statement um, that implies that one day everybody's going to bow, whether they want to or not. And we have the choice right now as his people to live now with that vision before us by bowing before him willingly right here and now. There is an overtone of judgment, I think, inescapably here um, that begins to kind of loom on the horizon like a dark cloud in the book of Revelation and portends what is to come in the following chapters. That sense of judgment is present in that word wail. All the tribes of the earth will wail. Other translations say um, all the peoples of the earth will mourn at the sight of him. Um, there is some scholarly debate about this word, but I think regardless of that, it's clear that there's something of a kind of warning and a foreboding of judgment. There's a first glimpse of something serious is coming. And yet, foreboding as the first half of verse 7 is, the verse ends with these words, so it is to be Amen. So it is to be. Amen. I don't know about you, but there's. I feel struck by the almost matter of factness of that of the ending of that verse. So it is to be. Amen. Um, let that go ahead and happen. Sounds good. Um, it seems like John fully and readily and calmly embraces. What is to come? And what it is that's coming is going to make all the tribes of the earth wail. And he's like, amen. Let it happen. With this amen, we're invited to embrace the end of the world. And yet it's not presented as something, the end of the world, I mean, it's not presented here as something to be shied away from. It's not something that's dreaded. And this is despite the fact that what John's saying amen to is something not only that will cause the tribes of the earth to wail, but that it's something that's going to mean great suffering for himself and for all Christians. We can see the fact 
that the end is going to mean suffering for Christians. In verse 9, where John says, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution, the persecution and the kingdom, and the patient endurance. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, Christians have almost universally interpreted the last part of verse 9 to mean that John had been exiled um, by government officials, essentially sort of imprisoned, because he's a minister of the gospel. And what he's saying here is that suffering, that persecution, is something that we share with Jesus, and you Christians, you're not going to get out of here without sharing it as well. And yet, in verse 7, John says, so be it. Amen. The Christians in the book of Revelation, unlike um, the Left Behind series, don't skip out on the suffering. Right? Um, in fact, John's already experiencing it. Before all the pagans go through all the gnarly stuff they're going to go through in this book, the Christians are already living through the birth pains of suffering and even death. And yet, John says, so it is to be. Amen. I think that in that amen, um, I hear, it's unspoken, but I nonetheless hear resounding a deep hopefulness. There's something about the calm and the matter-of-factness, and the sobriety about what's coming, coinciding with him saying, so be it, amen. I hear an unspoken, deep hopefulness in that amen. In fact, I think it was within the silence of that unspoken hope in that amen in verse 7 that I began to clearly hear God telling me that Revelation is the right book for us to be reading as a community this year. I think we're reading Revelation this school year because we are so desperately in need of hope. This apocalypse of Jesus Christ, that, that this apocalypse of Jesus Christ, is concerned with hope, even if that word doesn't appear in our reading. That this is about hope is evident in the simple fact that in this apocalypse you receive a vision of this world, of the present and the future, that transcends what we could see on our own. We receive in this book vision. We see what is happening to this place the world, and in this time, in the present, and what is coming, the future toward which the present is taking us, we see into all of that through this apocalypse in a way that is transcendent, that moves us beyond the faculties of human abilities, into the realm of revelation, of gifts, of the scene that comes from the outside. We see a vision from outside the world as we know it that is nonetheless about the world as we know it. A 
the world, which though we desperately don't want to admit, in fact, seems to be ticking down toward decay and destruction. The hope on offer to us in Jesus' apocalypse is truly hope. It is unshakable hope. And yet, the hope we are given in this apocalypse differs substantially from the kinds of hope, the kinds of hopes that hum along unnoticed, like the drone of the air conditioner or the refrigerator in your apartment. It's different than that kind of taken-for-granted hope that keeps our lives running. Our typical hopes are, are merely natural hopes. All seem to me rest upon assumptions also about time and the world. They rest upon assumptions about the direction of history, where things are headed. Our typical hopes assume, in basic form, that there will continue to be the world as we know it. All merely natural hopes, however personal, their premise on the basic hope that everything is going to be okay. And in a more ideological sense, they're, they're based on the notion of progress, that things not only are going to be okay, but they're probably given enough time, things are going to keep getting better. We have a hope, most of us, I think all of us actually, um, at a deep level, that things can only get so bad, whether in our own lives or, or in the broader society. A hope that, for example, society will not implode in on itself. So sure, Rome came to an end, there was like Nazi Germany, and there's unrest in other parts of the world, in faraway places, and in times far away from here and now. But one of our hopes that's operative, whether we notice it or not, is that there's going to keep being the society that I think most of us in this room were born into. And so our plans and our ambitions and uh, the, the path that we pursue in life and even just our sense of being okay in the world is often grounded on, on that unexamined hope. But recently, it's hard not to find oneself, at least from time to time, seized by a shuddering premonition that things might not be all right after all. That the predictable flaw of time might in fact not be something that we can assume anymore. Seize the premonition that there will be, there might, it might be possible that there will in fact be a great rupture of the world as we know it, a society as we know it, a catastrophe. A catastrophe such as we usually only imagine as an artifact of history, but that we do not presume to be an artifact of the future. Four years ago, as a society, we elected to the highest office in the land a patently racist internet troll to be the President of the United States of America. Four years later, today, 
Um, it's, it's not, I mean, having watched him wreak havoc on, first of all, the Republican Party, not to mention the shape of discourse in the United States of America, not to mention our, our status as a nation throughout the world, not to mention having amplified and revealed and intensified the hatreds that have been around as long as America has been around. Four years later, it's honestly not at all clear, having seen what's been going on in that presidency, it's by no means clear that he won't be reelected and that this is the halfway point of that presidency. Four years later, his only opponent on the other side um, is hardly an occasion for hope. And I, I do want to be clear here, just so you know, we'll talk about this later for me. I'm not a person that's about to vote in this upcoming election for lots of reasons, um, which I mean with the Bible, not with the, the candidates. So, with that said, I, I want to say I'm not what I'm not, what I'm not trying to say here is that Trump and Biden are equally appalling as candidates for the presidency. I'm not saying that. With that said, let's be honest. Donald Trump's only opponent in this upcoming election it is not a person that inspires hope or much of anything else. If anything, he's a kind of automaton of the status quo. And I don't know anybody that's excited about it. Today, there are hurricanes in the Gulf, one after another. There are wildfires in the West, mutating into bizarre weather events that have never been seen before. There is, not to mention, of course, a global pandemic that has killed nearly a million people worldwide, 200,000 of whom are United States citizens. Polar bears are drowning in the ocean as the planet warms, and they can't find their way to the next patch of ice. The internet has, has changed from uh, what seemed at one time to be an innocuous diversion and a source of information into something like Pandora's box. Um, I mean, the internet these days um, is responsible for, for making crazy conspiracy theory totally mainstream. Algorithms, the artificial intelligence um, engines of social media and content platforms in our day capture effectively, at least, yeah, actually more than this, just on YouTube. They capture 114,000 hours of watch time per day. 114,000 hours of YouTube is being watched every single day. I mean, that's an apocalypse of distraction in and of itself. That's an apocalypse of non-productivity in and of itself. And that's just one platform. But algorithms have turned out not to be just optimizers of entertainment, but something like demonic midwives of delusion pulling people down rabbit holes of screen time so that a person can start off watching self-help videos and a few hours, weeks, months later find themselves having turned into an active shooter. Such as Brenton Harrison, who in 2019, while hashtagging his favorite YouTube celebrities, walked into a mosque in New Zealand and gunned down nearly 100 people, 51 of whom died, 
all while live streaming the entire thing from a GoPro strapped to his head and angled in a way exactly reminiscent of every first-person shooter game since GoldenEye. Only this time it was real. There are signs and fortunes in the sky. Principalities and powers are everywhere victorious. The bad guys are winning. Worse yet, it's no longer possible to find any agreement as to who is bad and who is good. The concepts of good and bad having themselves fallen on hard times. In truth, our society appears at this moment to be tottering, threatening to collapse into a heap of futility like so many bricks in the Tower of Babel. For it has become nearly impossible for Americans even to talk to one another with any expectation of being understood. Even where understanding still exists as a potentiality, it's jettisoned as a goal, as something worthy of being sought in conversation in favor of vitriol and grim, golem-like delectation of one's own tribal rhetoric. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Not least in our language. After all in our day, we continue to call the murder of unborn children by euphemistic names, uh, which somehow add up to the word freedom. Singular persons in our own day that are by themselves one person can now be obligatorily referred to in the plural. Language is decaying. Nonsense is becoming commonplace. And this betrays something deeper than English major snobbery. It betrays a violent disposition toward our own flesh, our own creaturehood, whether it is a conservative violence or a liberal violence. The decay of our language betrays a violence for human flesh. Sometimes manifesting things like uh, the transhumanism movement, the ambition of science unfettered as it's always had to be in our society, which, unfettered and driven by capitalism as it is, is now rushing towards this transhumanism thing, the literal obsolescence of humanity as we know it, whether through designer children or through flesh that is literally augmented cyborg-like by machines. It is these latter phenomena, not just stuff that individual people are doing with their bodies, but the manifest insanity of society and the way that insanity has become normalized. The degradation and now the loss of public discourse, the ability to speak to one another. It is the gulf, indeed the chasm of non-communication, the assumed incomprehensibility of our neighbors, the abandonment of persuasion as a real possibility and thus, the apparent impossibility of any common causes or agreements, much less the amendment of wrongs, it's this more than anything else that causes the old hope, those tacit hopes in the background, to falter. 
A premonition flickers. A vision flashes. If we're willing to let it, of an end, of the loss of the future as we've always assumed it. We've always been a violent and rapacious society. But in our day, America comes of age not just as a violently oppressive society, but as a maniacally suicidal society. Do you see, can you see, the end of the United States of America? And if you do, what can that be for we Americans? How can we experience that as anything but a premonition of the end of the world? In these dread latter days, this is the hope that comes to us in the book of Revelation. Here's the shape of a, a firmer hope. A hope that we can hold even as those old hopes falter. Jesus loves us. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. The hope held out to us in Revelation is so seemingly modest that you might miss the fact that that's something you can actually cling to as the world as we know it threatens to crumble. The fact that Jesus loves us and he has made us his people in this world. The hope we read in this book is not that things are going to get better. Rather, the expectation throughout Revelation is that until the final consummation of all things, that things will go from bad to worse. Revelation turns us unflinchingly towards the facts of just how bad it is and then asks us to go still deeper to see the principalities, the power and this present darkness that lies behind what we can see with merely human eyes. It turns us toward the facts of how bad it is, and yet tenacious and unflinching as the vision of revelation is of this world. The experience of reading it is anything but pessimistic or depressing. The blessedness of those who read and hear and keep Jesus' words in this apocalypse is that they receive hope. Because they see there's something more than the decay and the destructive churn of human society that's happening. That it's not just mere chaos loose upon the world, but that still, even now, that the Lord is at work reconciling humanity to himself. The hope held out to us in this apocalypse is that we are loved by Jesus that he has made us a kingdom of priests, that he has made us the church. And us being the church does not depend upon the rising or the falling of any man-made kingdom. And these things mean that we can accept the invitation John um, is implying to us in verse 9 to enter the persecution of Christ for the sake of our mission and bear witness to the gospel. So now, as we move toward this table, having begun to get a sense of what apocalypse is,
having begun to hear the invitation to see with the eyes that Jesus would give us in Scripture. As we come to this table, recognize that Eucharist, communion, the thanksgiving that we celebrate at this table is itself a kind of performed apocalypse and one that is very much resonant with the vision given by the Lord to John in the book of Revelation. For here by the priesthood of Jesus we become what he makes us, a kingdom of priests. And now, at a time near the end of the world, a time drawing closer and closer to that last day when every eye will see him and every tribe on earth will wail at his coming. Now, we become the church, embracing the vision he gives us, and we see him coming even now. Here we meet Jesus, the one who is and he was and he was to come, who loves us and by his blood frees us from our sins. Amen.